0: Chapter Eight of Beyond These Voices. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah in Brighton. Beyond These Voices by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Eight Part Two. Her husband had been on the Continent moving from city to city for the greater part of the June month, in which she had been making her per-little fight against fate, trying to cure herself of Claude Rutherford, as if he had been at bad habit, like drink or drugs. And then one morning, when she was beginning the day dejectedly, tired of yesterday, hopeless of tomorrow, a telegram from Paris told her to expect her husband at seven o'clock that evening her heart beat gladly as at the coming of a deliverer she was not afraid of meeting him she longed for his coming as the one friend who might save her from an influence that she feared the face she saw in the glass while her maid was dressing her hair almost startled her there were dark marks under the eyes and the cheeks were hollow and deadly pale the black gauze dinner gown she had chosen would accentuate her pallor but it was nearly seven o'clock and there was no time for any change in her toilet. She paced the great empty rooms in sun and shadow, listening to every sound in the street and wondering if her husband would see the sickening change that sickening thought had made in her face and question her too closely. She heard the hall door open and then the familiar footstep, rapid, strong and yet light, very different from the footfall of a beast middle age, the step of a man whose active life And energetic temperament had kept him young. She met him on the threshold of the drawing-room. I am so glad you have come home, she said, holding up her face for his kiss. He kissed her, but without enthusiasm. I am glad you are glad, he said, but can that mean that you have missed me? From your letters, I thought you and Lady Susan were having rather a gay time. I was rushing about with her and going to parties, partly because I missed you partly, and the other part of it was because you like parties and are dull at home, I suppose, unless you have your house full. Oh, I am sick of it all, Mario, she said with a sort of passionate energy that made him believe her, and I would live quite a different life if you were not away so often, and if I were not thrown too much on my own resources. My dear Vera, this is a new development, he said gravely, sitting down beside her and looking at her with eyes that troubled her as if they could see too much of the mind behind her face. You were looking thin and white. Has anything happened while I've been away? Anything to make you unhappy? No! she exclaimed with tremendous emphasis, for she felt as if he were growing to rest, going to wrest her secret from her. What could happen? But I suppose there must come a time in every woman's life when she has had enough of what the world calls pleasure, when the charm goes out of amusements that repeat themselves year after year, and when one begins to understand the emptiness of a life occupied only with futilities, when one begins to tire of running after every new thing, actors, dancers, singers, and all the rest of them. I have had enough of that life, Mario, and I want you to help me to do something better with the liberty and the wealth you have given me. "'Do you want a mission?' he asked with a faint smile. This is what women seem to want nowadays. No, Mario, I want to be happy with you. Your business engagements take you so much away from home that our lives must be sometimes divided, but not always. We need need not be always living a divided life, as we have been in the last three years. A crimson flush swept across her face as she spoke, remembering that these were the years in which Claude Rutherford's influence had grown from a careless comradeship to an absorbing intimacy. Her husband looked at her in silence for a few moments, and his grave smile had now a touch of irony. Has it dawned upon you at last? he asked. Have you discovered that we have been living apart, that we have been man and wife in only name? It was not my fault, Mario. It was you who kept aloof. Not till I saw repulsion. Not till I saw aversion. No, no, never, never, never. I have never forgotten your goodness, never forgotten. All I owe you. They had been sitting side by side on the spacious Louis Quatorze sofa, his hand upon her shoulder, but at her last words he started to his feet with a cry of pain. Yes, that is it. You recognise an obligation. I have given you a fine house, Fine clothes, fine friends, and you think you ought to repay me for them by pretending to love me. Vera, that is all over. There must be no more pretending. I can bear a good deal, but I cannot bear that. I told you something of my past life before we were married, but I doubt if I told you all its bitterness, all the blind egotism of my marriage, the cruel awakening from a dream of mutual love to discover that my wife, had married me because I could give her the things she wanted, and that love was out of the question. I compared myself with other men and saw the difference, and as I had missed the love of a mother, so I had to do without the love of a wife. I was not made to win a woman's love, no, not even a mother's. This was why my affection for my daughter was something more than the common love of fathers. She was the first who loved me, and she will be the last mario you are too cruel have i not loved you yes perhaps for a little while you gave me a year of infinite happiness our honeymoon year that ought to be enough i have no right to ask for more but let there be no talk of gratitude if i cannot have love i will have nothing you have been so cold so silent and reserved so changed i thought you were tired of me tired of you Poor child how should you know the measureless love in the heart of a man of my life history when i took you in my arms in the evening sunshine i gave you all that was best and strongest in my nature boundless love and boundless trust all my life history went for nothing in that hour i did not ask myself if i was the kind of man to win the heart of a girl i did not think of my five and forty years or my forbidding face I gave myself up to that delicious dream. I'd find a girl who could love me, the divine girl, youth and innocence incarnate. Think it, what it was after a year of happiness to be awakened by a look and to know that I had again been fooled. That if in the first surprise of my passionate love, you'd almost love me, that love was dead. No, no, she sobbed. And then she hid her streaming eyes upon his breast and wound her arms about his neck, clinging to the husband in whom she found her only shelter. Was it some curious instinct of the flesh, or some power of telepathy, that told him not to take these tears and wild embrace for tokens of a wife's love? My dearest girl, he said, with infinite gentleness, as he loosened the clinging arms and lifted the hidden face. If this distress means sorrow for having unwittingly deceived me, for having taken a man's heart and not been able to give him love for love, there need be no more tears. The fault was mine. The mistake was mine. You must not suffer for it. To me you will always be unspeakably sweet and dear, whether I think of you as a wife or as the girl my daughter loved and whom I learned to love in those sad days when the shadow of death went with us in the spring sunshine. Yes, Vera, you will always be dear my dearest on this earth, but there must be no pretending, nothing false. Think of me as your friend and protector, the one friend whom you can always trust, your rock of defence against all the dangers and delusions of a wicked world. Trust me, dearest, and never keep a secret from me. Be true to yourself, keep your honour stainless, your purity of mind unclouded by evil associations. Let no breath of calumny soil your name. Rise, superiority chooses to ignore. I ask no more than this, my beloved girl, in return for measureless love and implicit faith. He was holding both her hands, looking at her with searching eyes—those clear grey eyes under a brow of power. Can you promise as much as this, Vera? Yes. With heart and mind? With heart and mind? And you will never take the liberty I give you for a letter of licence? No, no, no! But I don't ask for liberty. I want to belong to you, to be sheltered by you. You shall have the shelter, if you need it, but be true to yourself, and you will need no defender. A woman's safest armour is her own purity. And again, my love, with a return of the slightly ironical smile never was a woman better guarded than you are while you are fringed around by disbros, protected at every point by your mother's clan people at once well born and well bred with no taint of bohemianism unless indeed it may murk in your poco curante cousin the young painter who made such a lamentable failure of your portrait She felt as if every vestige of colour was fading out of her face, and that even her lips must be deadly white. They were so parched that when she tried to shape some trivial reply, the power of speech seemed gone. She felt the dry lips moving, but no sound came. This was the end of her appeal to the husband whose love might have saved her. Their relations were changed from that hour. He was not again the lover-husband of their honeymoon years, But he was no longer cold and reserved, he no longer held her at a distance, he was kind and sympathetic. He interested himself in her occupations and amusements, the books she read and the people she saw. He was with her at the opera, where Claude Rutherford sometimes came to them and sat through an act or two in the darkness at the back of the box. He was infinitely kind and tender, but it was the tenderness of a father or a benevolent uncle rather than of a husband he held rigidly to that which he had told her there was to be no make-believe in their relations if she was not happy she was at peace for some time after her husband's homecoming a period in which they were more together than they had ever been since those first years in their married life she tried to be happy tried to forget the time in which claude rutherford had been her daily companion the time when she planned no pleasure that he was not to share and had no opinions about people or places or books or art that she did not take from him loving the things he loved hating the things he hated as if they had been two bodies moved by one mind she tried not to feel an aching void for want of him she tried not to think him cruel for coming to her house so seldom and tried to be so- yeah. and tried to be sorry that they met so often in the houses of her friends The time came when the awakened conscience was lulled to sleep, and when her husband's society began to jar upon her strained nerves. She had invoked him as a defense against the enemy, and now she longed for the enemy, and had ceased to be grateful to the defender. The rampart of defense was soon to fall. A financial crisis was threatened, and Signor Provana was wanted at his office in New York. He told his wife, That he might be able to come back to london in a fortnight allowing ten days for the double passage and four for his business but if things were troublesome in america he might be a good deal longer i shall try to be home in time to take you to marinbad he told her but if i'm not here lady oakhampton will take you and you can get lady susan to go with you and keep you in good spirits i had a talk with your aunt last night and she promised to take you under her wing I don't want to be under anybody's wing, and Aunt Mildred will bore me to death if I see much of her at Marenbad. Oh, you will have your favourite Susie for amusement, and your aunt to see that she doesn't lead you into mischief. Lady Susan is a shade too adventurous for my taste. This idea of Marenbad was a new thing. A certain nervous irritability had been growing upon Vera of late, and her husband had been puzzled and uneasy and had called in a nerve specialist recommended by lady oakhampton one of those new lights whom everybody believe in for a few seasons after a quiet talk with vera that grave authority had suggested a rest cure, the living death of six weeks in a nursing home and on this being vehemently protested against by the patient had offered marinbad as an alternative Ravanna had been startled by this sudden change in his wife's temper from extreme gentleness and an evident desire to please him to a kind of febrile impatience and irritability and remembering her curious agitation on the evening of his homecoming, her pallid cheeks and passionate tears. He had an uneasy feeling that these strange moods had a common source and that there was something mysterious and unhappy that it was his business to discover before he left her. He came to her room early on the day of his departure, so early that she had only just left her bedroom, and was still wearing the loose white muslin gown in which she had breakfasted. She was sitting on her low sofa in a listless attitude, looking at the faces on the wall, Browning, Shelley, Byron, the faces of the inspired dead who were more alive than the uninspired living, but at her husband's entrance she started to her feet and went to meet him. You are not going yet she exclaimed I thought the boat train did not leave till the afternoon it does not but I must give the interval to business I have come to bid you good bye I am very sorry you are obliged to go she said for God's sake do not lie to me for pity's sake let there be no pretending he took both her hands and drew her to him looking at her with an imploring earnestness I have trusted you as men seldom trust their wives, he said. I thought I had done you a great wrong when I took you in the first bloom of your beauty and made you my own, cutting you off forever from the love of a young lover and all the passion and romance of youth. Considering this, I tried to make amends by giving you perfect freedom, freedom to live your own life among your own friends, freedom for everything that could make a woman happy except that romantic love which you renounced when you accepted me as your husband. I believed in you, Vera. I believed in your truth and purity as I believe in God. I could never have reconciled myself to the life we have led in this house if it were not for my invincible faith in your truth. But within this month, that faith has been shaken. Your eyes have lost the old look, the lovely look through which truth shone like a light. There is something unhappy Something mysterious. There is a secret, and I must know that secret before I leave you. Her face changed to a look of stone as he watched her. It was no time for tears. It was time for a superhuman effort at repression, to hold every feeling in check, to make her nerves iron. There was defiance in her tone when she spoke, after a silence that seemed long. There is no secret then why are you unhappy? I am not unhappy. I have a fit of low spirits now and then, a feeling of physical depression for which there is no reason. Or perhaps my idle, useless life and the luxury in which I live may be the reason. It is something more than low spirits. You are nervous and irritable and you have a frightened look sometimes, a look that frightens me. Oh, Vera, For God's sake, be frank with me. Trust me half as much as I have trusted you. Trust me as a daughter might trust her father, knowing his measureless love, and knowing that with that love there would be measureless pity. Trust me, my beloved girl. Throw your burden upon me, and you shall find the strength of a man's love and the self-abnegation that goes with it. I have no secret, no mystery. I mean to be worthy of your trust. I mean to be true to myself. If you doubt me, let me go to America with you. Keep me with you. His face lighted as she spoke, and then he looked thoughtfully at the fragile form, the delicate features, the ethereal beauty that seemed to have so frail a hold on life. No, you are not the stuff for sea voyages, and the storm and stress of New York. If we went there together, I should have to leave you too much alone among strangers. I shall have an anxious time there. But it shall not be a long time. If possible, I shall be here to take you to Maranbad. And in the meantime, you must love quietly and do what your doctor tells you. He is to see you next week. Remember. He held her to his heart with stronger feeling than he had shown for a long time and gave her his good bye kiss. She flung herself on her knees as the door closed behind him. God, help me to be true to him in heart and mind. That was the prayer she breathed mutely while her tears fell thick and fast upon her clasped hands. He was gone, the unloved husband, and she had to face the peril of the undeclared lover. She felt helpless and forsaken, and she sat for a long time in listless misery, and then, looking up at the pictures on the wall, she tried to realise that silent companionship, the souls of the illustrious dead, tried to believe that she was not alone in her dejection, that in the silence of her lonely room there was the sympathy and understanding of souls over whom death has no more dominion, and whose pity was more profound than any earthbound creature could give her. She thought of Francis Simeon, and of those mo- meetings of which he had told her. Nothing had come of her interview with him. Claude Rutherford's light laughter had blown away her belief in the high priest of the spiritual world, and she had thought no more of the creed that had appealed so strongly to her imagination. Now, when life seemed a barren waste, her thoughts turned to the philosophic visionary who had so gravely expounded his dream. Everything in her material world harassed and distressed her, and she had turned to the spiritual life to escape from reality. She wrote urgently to Mr. Simeon, telling him that she was unhappy and asking to be admitted to the society of which he had told her she had not to wait long for an answer simeon called upon her that afternoon and was with her for more than an hour full of kindness and sympathy sympathy that scared her for it seemed as if those strange eyes must be reading the depths of her inner consciousness and all the disgust of life and vague longing that were interwoven with her thoughts of claude rutherford it was to escape those thoughts to dissever sever herself from that haunting image that she pleaded for a mission to the shadow world. Bring me in communion with the great minds that are above earthly passions, would be her prayer, could she have spoken freely. But she sat in a thoughtful silence, soothed by the spiritualistic exposition of that dream world, which was to him more real than the solid earth upon which he had to live, a reluctant participator in the life of the vulgar herd. The mass of mankind, who have no joys, that are not sensual, and who live only in the present moment, have nothing but ridicule and disbelief for the faith that makes even this sordid material world beautiful for us, who see in earthly things the image of things supernal. He said, with that accent of sincerity, that intense conviction, which had made scoffers cease from scoffing under the influence of his personality. However, they might ridicule him in his absence. Everyone had to admit that, though the creed might be absurd, the man was wonderful. There was to be a meeting of us at his chambers on the following afternoon, and Simeon begged Vera to come. You may find only thought and silence, he said, a company of friends absorbed in meditation, but without any message from the other world, or you may hear words that burn. The voices of disembodied genius. In any case, while you are with us, you will be away from the dust and traffic of the material world. Yes, she would go. She was only too glad to be allowed to be among his disciples. I want to escape, she told him. I am tired of my futile life. So tired. I thought you would have joined us long ago, he said as he took leave but I think I know the influence that held you back. The hot blood rushed into her face, the red fire of conscious guilt that always came at the thought of Claude Rutherford. She had never minimised her sin. It was sin to have made him essential to her happiness, to have lost interest in all the rest of her life, to have given him her heart and mind. I think the psychological moment has come, continued Simeon's slow, grave voice and that you should now become one of us. You have drained the cup of this trivial life and have found its bitterness. Our religion is our faith in the afterlife. We have the faith that looks through death. The orthodox Christian talks of the life beyond, and we must give him credit for sometimes thinking of it. But does he realize it? Is it near him? Does he look through death to the spirit world beyond? Does he realize the afterlife as Christ realized it when he talked with his disciples? End of chapter 8, part 2. Recording by Sarah in Brighton.